In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. The beauty of developing and hosting a podcast like Notably Disney is exposure to a wide variety of new experiences, whether it be interviewing an up-and-coming composer or gleaning a new piece of Disney history that had yet to be uncovered until the release of a new book. In the case of the episode today, I'm excited to bring you all a conversation with poet Matt Mason. Now, in my three years of orchestrating Notably Disney, I haven't had the opportunity to talk with a poet because generally when you're picking up a Disney book, you're not necessarily going to find that within. However, the release of Matt's new book at the corner of Fantasy and Main Disneyland, Midlife, and Churros does just that in featuring a number of different poems that harken back to one of my favorite places in the world, Disneyland. And I really hope you find value in this conversation, that you're exposed to new ways of channeling ideas and appreciate the pure beauty associated with Matt's writing. This is not a common type of release or conversation for that matter because of just the landscape of writing in the Disney world generally excluding poetry. So this is really a treat. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, well, this is a first for Notably Disney, because uh, this is an episode dedicated to Disney poetry. It only seemed about time that uh, we dive into this arena, and so I'm really glad that my next guest reached out, reached out to me, um, and he is the Nebraska State Poet and the author of a new title published by the Old Mill Press. Matt Mason's book, At the Corner of Fantasy and Maine, Disneyland, Midlife, and Churros, features an array of poems centered around the happiest place on earth. And today on the podcast, he's here to discuss his unique journey in crafting this release and what readers can expect from this really cool title. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, let's just begin with the basics. Can you talk about your, your background in poetry? 
familiarize our listeners? Yeah, I've been, you know, writing since high school, even though I didn't uh, exactly know that what I was writing, if it was poetry or not, and just knew that I loved it and kept going with it. So, you know, a couple in English degrees later, uh, um, you know, published a book, then published another. Uh, and it's just been, you know, something I love doing. I've traveled around Nebraska and around, you know, really around the country and around the world uh, doing poetry here and there. Uh, I've done, run a couple state department programs, uh, but mostly what I've done is, is, is go all around Nebraska in, in the cities and in rural, just working with students and showing them that poetry is a little bit more interesting than they thought it was uh, when they were studying it. Um, and so then I was made state poet a few years ago and have been enjoying that. Well, that perfectly segues into my next question, which is for, un for the unfamiliar, what doesn't Nebraska state poet do over that tenure? And how do you actually get to that uh, really notable uh, position? And it's, yeah, it's kind of a, a, a lifetime achievement award for poetry. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with students and with communities. And really, my goal is to make poetry seem more accessible and more interesting than most people think it is. Because, um, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't think I liked poetry. Um, you know, I would be, uh, we would finish a book of poetry, and I would have a little thing before class the next day where we draw goalposts on the chalkboard and kick field goals with the poetry books. Um, so I've, I've since, you know, changed my mind. Uh, I've seen a lot of poetry that really draws me in more and uh, poetry that I can really get interested in. And it's been, it, it's been great. So, but as state poets, um, my job is, Nebraska has 93 counties. And my goal is to do a poetry event in every county in Nebraska and just work on getting people more interested in poetry. Well, that sounds like a really incredible responsibility too. And is it correct that it's a four or five year term? It's a five year term. Yeah. Five, okay. Which has covered two years of pandemic. So I'm a little behind on my 93 counties, but I'm, I'll get there. I was going to say, do virtual events count or not so much? Not in my, they might, but not in my book. So my goal is to get set foot in every county and, and do some poetry. Now in those events, are you sharing others' poetry in addition to your own? Yeah, it, it's mostly, uh, you know, it's, it's whatever they'll bring me in for. So sometimes I'm going in and writing with people, with students or with community members. Uh, sometimes I'm doing a poetry reading that's mainly my work, but I love it when I can uh, bring in somebody else local, uh, another local poet or, or, or something like that too, or at least when I'm writing with students in one, uh, one event, have a few of them read their poems at my event. So, yeah. Well, that's really cool. Um, and what I, what I appreciate about your role and, and what the type of work you're engaging in is that there's uh, certainly an education component, but also probably an illuminating component in terms of the possibilities of how folks can translate their thoughts into words, which sometimes is, is hard to, you know, get, get over that hump. 
Definitely. It's mostly just, you know, it's exciting when someone makes the connection that poetry is actually fun and that they can write a poem about the things they're interested in rather than it has to be some, you know, some intellectual exercise. It's like, nah, it's just a lark. It's just fun. Now let's transition to your interest in Disney, because I understand that you went to Disneyland many years ago um, and that you kind of grew a new appreciation for it in more recent years. Um, but but what's what's your connection to Disney over time? And I think it's presented itself in the book, uh, in your book full of poems, but I'm, I'm curious if you could try kind of just situate our listeners with your uh, Disney connection. Yeah, it, it's, it's something that I never really saw as a, you know, until a few years ago, I didn't see as a Disney connection in that, you know, I went when I was a kid with my parents, when I was, you know, four years old, went again when I was, uh, you know, all the time, most of my life I've lived in Nebraska. I went to college in California, so I was five hours away and went to Disneyland a couple times with friends, went once after college with friends, we were driving around the country. Um, and then after my mom passed away, uh, in 2014, um, I took my family to Disneyland in 20, you know, the next year. And, um, I think all of these different big times of my life and end up intersecting in Disneyland. And so something happened, I think when I turned 49 a few years ago and, um, yeah, yeah. It was just one of those ridiculous like TV show type midlife crises where one day it's like I woke up and couldn't stop thinking about Disneyland. And, you know, I'm looking up the YouTube video of that televised opening day black and white show, looking up podcasts to learn more about Disneyland, reading articles on Disney history and just all this kind of you know, it went from zero to 60 in like, oh yeah, I like Disneyland to holy cow. I need to learn everything possible about Disneyland right now. Um, it was weird. And so this is why I started writing a book, writing poems and through writing the poems kind of figured out what was going on in my life, in my head, in my heart, whatever. Um, and so I, you know, I end up work. I've been working on this book for probably four years before it got picked up. And it was a lot of work and it was so much fun though. Cause you know, it is this, it's not just fun to explore different aspects, but it's really a learning experience. It's like, why is all this happening? Well, let's write about it and see. So was there a single moment or epiphany where you realized that you need to compile all of this into a compendium, a book. You know, it, it, it kind of was obvious early on. Um, most of the time when I'm writing, you know, I've got a, uh, a schedule where I make myself write a new poem every week. So by Monday night, I have to have a new poem, which means I'm just writing about general things. There are sometimes there will be themes for a couple weeks and then it'll go somewhere else. Once I started writing about Disneyland, it was pretty clear within a couple months that I was going to be working on a book because it was just, you know, a couple poems a week about Disneyland. So uh, just had to, you know, it, it, it's something that I had help from my wife. She's a poet too. 
And when I first started doing all this research, um, she she could see what was going on, even though I was trying to hide it from her because I felt like, why is this happening? I feel ridiculous. Um, and after a couple months of doing all this research, I hadn't done any writing. And finally, she's like, you know, dude, you, you're doing all this research. Why are you not writing? So once I started, it just, it just went. Now, did you spend any time in the parks during the book's development? I, I might've, uh, yes. So the, the biggest, the best, biggest and best year was 2018. Um, cause I had, uh, you know, it, it, it was one, the, the reason was it was my uh, oldest daughter's uh, um, eighth grade year. And so this is like the last chance I can reasonably take her out of school and go see Disneyland when it's not as busy, you know, January, February. Um, so we went uh, with a whole family and my mother-in-law and we had a blast. And I was kind of like waffling about, you know, I've got a, a three-day ticket, but should I convert that into an annual pass and maybe go again later this year? Yes, I did. Um, and so what actually happened, the biggest was that May, I uh, came back to Disneyland and spent uh, almost two weeks in the park. Um, thank, thank you, uh, cheap annual pass that I got right before rates uh, started going up. Um, and it was that those two weeks where, I mean, I went to the park to work, I, uh, you know, I'd park in a little uh, table outside Jolly Holiday and I would write poems and I would edit poems and I would send poems to magazines to see if they would publish them. And then, you know, I would take a break and eat a churro and ride Space Mountain. So it is the best kind of work environment, I think. Um, and so, yeah. And then uh, that summer too, I, uh, did two other trips, each with one daughter. It's like, uh, the, these trips are all sponsored by uh, my credit card miles. Uh, thank you. Um, and that annual pass, which is amazing. Uh, so I was just kind of lucky and uh, made these trips work and I'm grateful because now I've got a book. Uh, and, and it was really those trips that um, I think some of the best writing or some of the best details that I brought into other poems came from. So it was, uh, 2018 was a pretty good Disney year for me. Sure. Sounds like it. And I guess we'll, we'll kind of go into the development of particular poems, but I'm interested in, you mentioned the notion of that when you just kind of revisited the park, um, it was a 2015, how that was like a, a time where you were just engaging in all this Disney research, in what ways would you say that played a role in gathering details that ultimately manifested in the poems? Because I recognize as you're talking that some of the content directly derived from being in the parks, but I'm curious in terms of prior to that period, doing just initial Disney exploration, how that factored in. Um, you know, it's just the, yeah, I started writing the poems in at the second half of 2017. Um, I didn't have any poems about that 2015 trip until afterwards. It's like mostly once I started writing, I would be looking at the different times in my life and writing poems for them. Looking back at the trip in 1973 and um, in the 80s and, um, and it, it was 
kind of using these older experiences with the newer um, kind of exploration of why am I having this midlife crisis about Disneyland? So I was looking at each of the instances where I'd been and just trying to work on it. Um, and then all the time I got to spend in the park in 2018 helped um, because there were some of the poems I'd written either early 2018 or late 2017 that um, got really fleshed out by being able to go back to the park and uh, see things and be influenced by the park and the details and just bring so much more into these poems. Gotcha. And what about when you were actually at the park? You know, you mentioned the notion of sitting at Jolly Holiday and being a churro and just kind of taking in the environment. What were those sparks that emerged when you were in the physical environment? You know, the bit, there's a lot to be said of about how environment can just affect what you're doing and what you're thinking about. Um, and so just being there, listening to families, listening to the music, um, hearing the rides or, you know, up on Jolly Holiday, you hear the Tiki Room pre-show right behind you. Um, it's just all of these details that are just kind of uh, hitting you it's it's an amazing place to write um, if you haven't written a poem there or a story or a song I you know go to Disneyland and spend half an hour just kind of chilling um, it, it, it's because you, you know the previous trips with my family and all um, it's just like okay we'll go ride to ride and then we'll stop and get some lunch but everything had a purpose there wasn't much time just sitting and watching other people or taking it in. And so I really feel lucky to have had, had the time and the experience to be able to just take it in because it's amazing. It's so well crafted by the cast members, by the Imagineers, and it's just a beautiful environment. Were there other spots that generated inspiration or where you actually were sitting and actively writing? Yeah, I... I there's one poem that I wrote on Pirates of the Caribbean right? Um, in the dark. So the, the first draft of that on my notebook looks, it's all over the place. It's a mess, uh, but it was fun to write. Um, I did like, uh, you know, Tom Sawyer Island was a pretty good place. And um, man, I mean, it's hard to think of bad places but I, I think the one i mostly gravitated toward was always back to jolly holiday something about there in the hub with all the lands kind of surrounding you is uh it was a pretty good place i i do think though then the title should have been at the corner of maine and adventure <laughs> <laughs> it's possible yeah <laughs> should, should just upend it now um <laughs> no no but speaking of the title one of my questions was you know uh, you know you focus on midlife just based on where you're where you are but also churros so was that by virtue of that being something you constantly consumed or was it just because it's a very common disneyland related uh item so to speak uh it was all due to consumption um and you know uh, many churros were consumed in the making of this book uh is an accurate statement um and one thing is i'm, I'm diabetic so 
you know, normally that would mean I would have to be much more careful of churros. But the problem is when you're at Disneyland, uh, you know, I'm much more active than in my normal day. So, you know, walking 10,000, 20,000 steps a day um, when usually I walk a lot less. Um, so I would, you know, occasionally find my sugar was running a little low and it's like, well, churro cart. Do you have a favorite type? Because I know they love to experiment with the flavors. Oh man, you know I I, I really do love the the regular cinnamon sugar plain, but they did have one. Um, I like the caramel dipping sauce with that. Um, so when you can get that, I think the time I had them were with an apple churro which was okay, but I think I would just get the caramel dipping sauce and a regular churro, and that was the stuff. There you go. How do you find a market for a book as distinct as yours? Because I I, I can probably guess that that was not an easy sell. (laughs) It was not. Um, Yeah, trying to figure that one out was, I mean, I legitimately had come to terms with the fact that this book might never get published just because um, our Disney publisher is going to want to publish a book of poetry. Look around. There are not often, not many, Um, you know, go to the whole Disney books website. And I think there's like one anthology of poetry put together by Maria Shriver. Um, And there's not a lot out there. Um, Obviously, I think I've heard you on a podcast talking about different genres of Disney poetry or or Disney literature and books and poetry did not come up once. So as far as I know, there's not a lot out there. And yeah, so I, I I tried to approach uh, Disney books and some publishers on the Disney side and got no response. Uh, Sent it to a few poetry publishers, got no response because I think the same way, you know, poet poetry presses, and a book of Disneyland poetry. They're like, what? Um, So what happened was, uh, as I was kind of giving up on, on, or not giving up, but just constantly looking. And then uh, I ran across the Old Mill Press. And, you know, there are Disneyland, uh, these beautiful coffee table books and, and other history collections. And I was looking at their website and it's like, Okay, look at these beautiful Disney books. And wait, there's a book of poetry here. Um, and then I was like, there's a couple books of poetry. So I approached them and uh, they wanted to see the book and uh, they ended up liking it. So I, it just took a while, but I found the right place. Just because something doesn't exist doesn't mean there's not a market for it, too, which I think is a helpful reminder because I think I see all the time that pop culture increasingly has its intersections with disciplines that you ordinarily wouldn't think, but perhaps that, you know, serves as, you know, an opportunity for someone to be a pioneer on that front. Willing to try. (laughs) Now, before we go into some of the text, can you tell me how you came to use a piece of art by George Scribner for the cover? Um, Maybe you can orient uh, our listeners to uh, to who George Scribner is because he has a major Disney connection. Oh man, yeah. Well, you know, he d- did some animating, may have directed Oliver and Company. You know, d- he's done a few pretty cool Disney things. Um, and this is all through the press. Uh, the Old Mill Press has a relation with them, and 
uh, was able to use this artwork. Uh, I wish I could claim I had some part in that, but uh, no. Uh, and I'm so, I love the image anyway. And just knowing that it's George Scribner's, uh, I mean, he does such beautiful work on uh, Panama. And I, the Old Mill Press, I think, has a, a, a book of his uh, paintings coming out soon. And uh, he's just, he's pretty amazing. So, in fact, for, you, for those of you at home, and that was just pointing to the book for, yes. <laughs> for, for those who may not have been able to pick Moment up on of that. podcast silence. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Matt, let's talk about some of the content. Um, there's obviously a lot here. Um, and I realized in the time we have, we can't cover everything, but I'd love to focus on several uh, poems that I enjoyed as well as get your thoughts on some of the processes and, and writing them. One of them is entitled, the web's real peril, which I would say captures the furtiveness and fury behind booking a Disney trip. Would this maybe relate to personal experience by any chance? Maybe. <laughs> uh, yes. And, and just kind of the obsessiveness of, of where I was at at that time. Cause I mean, these poems, you know, some of them seem a little exaggerated and they weren't. It's, uh... yeah. Do you want me to read the poem? Yeah, you're welcome to. Okay. A poem's called The Web's Real Peril, after William Carlos Williams. You have Google Flights updates, Airfare Watchdog, the Hopper app. You have been going to Disneyland.disney.go.com every day to check for subtle differences in price. It is more art than science. Balancing the shades of airline miles, the mystery 2.5 star hotel you can book for this low, low price. This whole thing is not affordable. You have kids to take out of school so you can take advantage of January and its lower crowd days. You hide what you're working on from your wife. Act busy. Click away from mousesavers.com when you hear her approach. No, hun. Just immersed in this BuzzFeed article about emojis nothing to see here move along please move along because you've booked the flight home but not the flight there so much depends upon the web's real peril crazed with shamed shoppers behind the white kingdom all I know is I prefer the audiobook version. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, it was uh I mean that that is how I planned a Disney trip was a lot of trips to websites, checking all the different websites. Uh it it was a little wild. And you know, and also, you know, as I'm planning that especially that May trip where I wanted to be there on like my own writing residency trying to figure out what dates will work where my you know uh my wife is a college professor and she'll be done with work but the kids will still be in school so it won't be too much of a you know there's so many details to figure out on these things and also details immersed in just the uh uh, verbiage in this so the, uh, the notion of dot disney dot go dot com i think uh many of us remember when when that originated uh around the turn of the millennium and yeah that there's always the go there the, it was going to be big <laughs> go.com um no it was 
I just think it's very clever and it really, there's, there's such a sense of tone associated with it in terms of just the, uh, the anxiety, the uh, fastidiousness in, in planning a trip. So I think that's very much comes through. Well, thank you. Well, I didn't, I did not plan on, on the, the narration. So now I'm going to, so now I'm going to run that for future. If you want to go for that. Um, you know, Matt, you talk about the original Disneyland broadcast that you watched that was part of your Disney research. And I think that um, is very salient in the Tomorrowland 1955 poem. Um, Tomorrowland's my favorite land of all the lands. I'm not sure if you have a favorite, um, but I, I really appreciated uh, some of the uh, references to the time that you include in there, if you feel so inclined to read it. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I would say probably in some ways Tomorrowland's my favorite, in some ways Fantasyland's my favorite. Um, kind of just depends how close I am to Space Mountain because that's my favorite ride. So you can't um, go wrong there. No, you can't. So all right, so this poem is called Tomorrow. Like I okay, so I loved that that nineteen fifty. If you have not seen the nineteen fifty five uh, live broadcast of Disneyland's opening. You've got to. It is wild. Um, oh, yeah. And I had a couple poems from it. I mean, one just about that dance uh, in Frontierland with, you know, singing about uh, the gun. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. But it's too weird of a poem. So it didn't make it into the book. But this one did. So Tomorrowland 1955 starts with two quotes, one from Walt Disney's dedication to Tomorrowland that day, July 17th, uh, where he says, a vista into a world of wondrous ideas, signifying man's achievements, a step into the future with predictions of constructed things to come. It's awesome. And then uh, this from a, a book called Walt's Utopia, Disneyland and American Mythmaking by Priscilla Hobbs, uh, where she says, in its original design, Tomorrowland's setting was 1986, chosen because it was the next return for ha Haley's Comet. Tomorrowland 1955. The world of 1986, as shown on black and white TVs, is all rocket ships and small cars where Sammy Davis Jr. can rear-end Sinatra, a place where atomic energy metaphor mousetraps spray ping-pong balls willy-nilly. Walt starts to talk, then stops, confused, as a voice in his ear tells him not yet, and Walt, broadcast live, waits. Don't sweat it, boys. Take it from someone who graduated high school in 1986. You, everything, everything, nailed it. Applause, mic drop. Uh, <laughs> can we deconstruct that, Matt? So how do you feel like they nailed it? Because I think that's an interesting way of in inserting yourself in this. I, I love that. Oh, man, I just... You know, I loved watching that and, and you know, knowing that, um, you know, it was modeled after 1986, which is a year I remember just beautifully, you know, senior in high school, so wonderful, flashy, yet geeky and awkward. And there was just something about that whole experience of uh, everything on screen uh, for that was, was just wild. And then Walt's like waiting's like, and... Oh, 
you know, waiting, waiting on live TV. It's like, yes, you've nailed the awkwardness that makes me feel uh, right as a senior in high school that year. So, yeah. Kind of uh, connecting back to the awkwardness of the live broadcast, did that also play a role in your use of spacing for yeah. the presentation of the of the words here? Yeah, this one was fun to play with on the page. Uh, things are spaced out a little bit just to kind of, it's about confusion. It's about awkwardness. Um, it's about this kind of start and stop of things. Uh, trying to be futuristic, but yeah. <laughs> and and I, I love how you honed in on these very much, you know, 1950s celebrities, you know, Rat Pack focus because, you know, driving those Autopia cars was just, it was, especially with no tracks back then. <laughs> I mean, I, I just remember that being so uh, wacky and and also like oh of course it's this a lister because it's the opening of Disneyland and they're dressed in their suits and all you know very uh, fancy yeah and especially now it's like you know Autopia it's it's a fun ride and all but it's not what it was then uh, I suspect in that it's like yeah it's a little slow it's it's, it's a little kind of old fashioned. Um, and like then it's like, ah, oh, Autopia, uh, here's Sinatra getting off his car. You know, it's kind of cool. <laughs> and, and you focus uh, a good deal, you know, in each land. I feel like every area gets a certain degree of focus. And another element of Tomorrowland that still has a presence today, albeit in a different form, is the submarine voyage. Um, and I feel like you really captured the precise feelings associated with embarking on on such an undersea adventure was I, I take it that that was a um a ride that that resonated with you oh yeah it was it, it's the ride I remember the best uh fr- you know I don't remember a lot I don't have a great memory but uh you know I when thinking about like what rides did we ride and all it's like submarine voyage is always right there um just that that dragon uh where it looks like you're going to come up on this fierce sea serpent and then you know you finally see its head and it's just this kind of gap tooth goofy thing so it was fun considering it's been at least in its original incarnation has been gone for nearly 25 years did did that prompt you to watch some old videos of it or yeah okay yeah so i watched the uh i had to because you know i'd written you know, writing uh, the the Nemo version um, uh, was the Finding Nemo version. I guess they're both kind of Nemo in some way. But um, yes. <laughs> you know, it was fun. It was, but it's like writing that. It's like you know, I remember this hitting me so differently. So you know, I try to remember the different things that I saw and then watch the video. It's like oh, and it all just came back. So. And in addition to covering particular attractions, you also focus on just characters in the parks. And you focus on two canine characters that is so wry and so uh, unique that I feel it's worth you giving some background to. All right. So this is a poem called Systematic Oppression and Goofy. So I'll read it first and we can discuss 
which, you know, some parts of it are an old trope, but I tried to bring some, something different to it. So systematic oppression and goofy. What does Goofy think when he sees Pluto leashed to that master? Goofy clomps in, wearing pants, car keys chiming in a pocket. Does he look down at the long tongue of a cousin and think there but for the grace of God? Does he ever look at that giant gloved hand, the fist at the end of the leash, and feel his ears pull back? This is brilliant, but I'd love to find out more about uh, how and why you develop this you know i don't this one i don't exactly know i think i was just you know in in the research and whatever not just watching different cartoons and then just letting my mind wander you know i think there's a little bit from god is it goonies uh where they talk a little bit about this thing about goofy at least what is goofy and all that Mm, right um and i and i did have to look that up because you know you know, it's like, is Goofy a dog, really? I'm pretty sure he's a dog, but, you know, I'd heard some people say he's a cow. It's like, that's not a cow. Um, so it just took me down a Goofy rabbit hole, I suppose. And, you know, fortunately, a, a poem came out of it. So I just, yeah, I thought it was, you know, very, I don't know. It's just very unique, particularly because you added the yuck part, which, I mean, anybody can can do that. So. <laughs> it's got to have a yuck if it's a poem about Goofy. So. Yeah. And the impression was very good verbally. So <laughs> I, that's, again, Matt, I mean, I think you're, you're missing out on market here without doing the audio book. I mean, maybe that's the next step. Possibly. So. We'll look into that. So. <laughs> I'll talk to the press. <laughs> okay. And, you know, so so many of your poems are situated in Disneyland across different points in time, which I feel like is a perhaps a nice ode to the fact that you are focused on your position as someone midlife, but kind of reflecting back as well. How did you make sense of how you wanted to construct that throughout the book? Because it's it's scattered. It's not a linear format. Yeah. And that I it made the most sense to me just because a lot of this book talks about memory and, you know, how some things we remember really beautifully and some things we have no memory of. Um, So there's a sort of, I I think a certain amount of disjointedness is natural. And especially in a place where these different eras of my life are connected, where some things bleed over and other things trigger memories of a different time um and so personally i think the times jumped around um as i'm going to disneyland and i'm you know in 2018 but i'm reminded of something from you know 1985 or something like that so um it 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 just kind of made sense for the the way the book aims to reach a conclusion of why all this, uh, why did this uh, strange obsession happen? Um, That if I would have gone in a linear way, it wouldn't have, I think, conveyed everything the way, the way it felt as I went through it all. Yeah. It seemed like you're just processing a lot being in those spaces. 
Yeah. And so, you know, when you process things, you know, you don't go from A to B to C to D. You go A to Q to S to V to, you know, it comes out like it comes out. Well, and, and reading the poems, too, it, it seems that many of them were a love letter to your parents. Yeah. How did that how did memories with them shape your process? Man, it I mean, they were key to the whole thing. They're the ones who took me, um, you know, back in 1973 and then another trip that I'd completely forgotten about until I saw this photo of and had no memories whatsoever um, from a few years after that one. Um, and then just how everything played out with how I took my family, you know, I was able to take my family in 2015, um, as you know, my mom had passed away, uh, you know, six months before. Um, and that was kind of how we chose, we chose to remember her with some kind of trip and we ended up going to Disneyland. Um, and so she was a little extra in there. And one thing with her, too, is that uh, it brought up my dad, of course. He, he passed away in 1990, um, and he's here throughout the book, too, um, partly because after my mom passed away, we, our family got a call from a random old friend of my dad's who had been looking after you know, not a ton, but a small amount of money uh, that he had given to this guy. So to watch for after my mom had passed away, it was totally random and made no sense to any of us. But suddenly we had a little bit of money to take a trip with. Uh, and that trip ended up being tied to both my mom and my dad. And I love how the Old Mill Press has a couple photos in the book uh with with me but also with my mom and my dad so you know the photo with my dad this is the one that spurred the the poem of the trip that i'd forgotten about and there's another um one with my mom so they were i mean obviously tied to the story anyway they're my parents but they ended up having a much uh much bigger role than i ever would have guessed when i started writing these poems yeah, well, I think there's that sense of humanity, especially with the incorporation of the photo. Was that one with your dad set in, was that like near the Matterhorn on that little dock where the little motorboat cruise was, or is that? Oh, I think it's else? at the monorail. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, the, the where you load up on the monorail, I think. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I could be wrong. <laughs> I have no memory of any of that, but uh, except for that photo. So, yeah, there you go. Well, and there's, you know, there's also, in addition to the sense of reflecting on the past, there's also this element of meta reflection, which comes in at different points, but I think very apparently so in Mr. Toad's wild rhyme. Is that, is that a fair estimation? I, I think that makes, uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite poems. Um, so let me, let me pull that one up. Um, but that one was a lot of fun to work on. Cause you know, I, I started writing it as uh, a villanelle, uh, form of poetry and it's not, it went wrong, but I still loved what I ended up with. So, um, Matt, what is a villanelle for those who might not be familiar? 
Villanelle is a French form of poetry that counts on repetitions with the first and third lines going throughout the poem at the end of each three line stanza. And then the, the one, two, three, the sixth stanza is four lines and it's supposed to have a rhyme scheme of A, B, A, A, and mine doesn't. Mine's A, A, B, B. Otherwise, it's close to being a not terrible Villanelle um, form wise. Gotcha. All right. Thanks for They're the context. Fun. Yeah. It's got rhyme. It's got repetition. That's the main, and it's French. What, what more do you need? So yeah, it's um, very fitting in fantasy land, which has <laughs> its French influences. There you go. So here's a poem called Mr. Toad's wild rhyme. You're just another aging man growing brittle out of shape, preoccupied with Disneyland. Another day without a plan, another stumble, misstep, mistake for just another aging man looking for something more grand than emails and meetings and frustration. So you're preoccupied with Disneyland where yesterday, tomorrow and fantasy are supposed to replace today for just another aging man. And maybe that's survival, necessary sleight of hand, salvation in escape, in preoccupation with Disneyland on a wild ride that will maybe only complicate your comprehension of obsession's weight when you're just another aging man preoccupied with Disneyland. Bravo. That's real. No, that's beautiful. Why is it one of your favorites? I just love how it came together. Um, and I think it really addresses the, the themes of the book and kind of where the book is, is turning at that point of kind of figuring things out but there's a you know there's a certain amount of joy to it too um as as the book kind of is figuring out where it's going and you know i think villanelles are fun i love i love form poetry i love sonnets i love sestinas i love villanelles um i and i often end up bending the rules on them a, a little bit here and there but I, I just love seeing where they take you when you're writing about something Indeed. Well, and what's really nice too is there's this ode to Disneyland's opening with the notion of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. Um, yeah. That that's just, I think, uh, a really nice uh, connection there. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. What challenges did you face, if any, in trying to encapsulate the totality of Disneyland um, across these dozens of poems? Because you're not only accounting for a variety of different spaces and settings, but also different points in time, um, as you illustrate with the reference to submarine voyage and then more modern references too. Yeah, I mean, that that took some choices as I did the writing. Um, Cause you know, there are a few poems set in California adventure that didn't make the book. Um, I tried to write something uh, for, you know, I have some Star Wars poems that I thought I could maybe fit in here, but it's like, no. Um, and then considering, do I need to write something for Toontown? But, you know, looking at my experiences with Disneyland, Toontown was never a significant part. So I just kind of left that um, off to the side. And then just figuring out other things. Like um, there's one poem in the, the, the one poem in the book that's about a different park is about Disneyland Paris, um, where I went, you know, right. 25 years ago. Um, and I went back and forth with how it would fit, but then it ended up, I think, fitting really well. Um, so there were a lot of choices and just a lot of 
uh, as I figured out what the project was really about, figuring out what fit, what didn't. So there's a lot of B-sides, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of cuts on the editing room floor. Um, so, uh, but I think, you know, he was figuring out the heart of what I was talking about to, to fit in though. Well, and I would say Toontown may be absent, but by the same token, because you referenced the characters who inhabit Toontown, there is oh. an indirect connection. So it's all about <laughs> how you spin it, Matt. <laughs> nice. I'm going to remember that. Because, yeah, Goofy, I mean, Goofy comes up in like three different poems. So he's there. Mickey's there a few times. Mostly it's foods shaped like Mickey's head, I think. But, you know, Mickey's there. Were there no Dole Whip references because of the brand name? Because I imagine that's also a popular food choice. There is no Dole Whip, and Dole Whips are what you know, right behind churros, it's Dole Whips for me, I think. So, um, there is one poem that is mainly about Dole Whips, uh, at the corner of Adventure and um, uh, here, that's right. Now I see it, yeah, Dole, Dole Whip Cup, yep, okay. So, you know, hopefully Dole won't sue me, but uh, no, I don't think so. I'm advertising your Dole whips. There we go. <laughs> your pineapple yeah. goodness. So, Yeah. Okay. So I'm mistaken. So I am glad that there is that reference because I think a lot of Disney fans would be offended by its omission <laughs> otherwise. All churro, no Dole whip. How can you? Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, you see the popular shirts now that have like images of all the food products. So that's, that's how society has descended in terms of just featuring all of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Matt, reflecting on all of this, um, what was, what was your m most significant, you know, uh, takeaway from crafting this compendium of poems? I, you know, the most significant, takeaway was just that this weird random seeming obsession that just kind of punched me one day was really a lot about I mean it's about connections in life but it really significantly about my parents um and the phase of life I'm in now with my own family um yeah, I think it was just the surprise of what really caused this because because the whole obsession was so strange to me. It, you know, you see a sitcom with someone with a midlife crisis and you think, oh, that's totally ridiculous. They're just making stuff up and they probably are. But there's a certain amount of stuff like that that happens. <laughs> and, uh, and but it happens for a reason too. And so it, it was a real joy to, to work on these poems, to have fun working on these poems, to go to Disneyland uh, because I'm writing a book of poetry um, and really, really come away with it with, with something that's really enjoyable and meaningful for me. So it was, it was fantastic. That's awesome. And I guess I, must ask what is next for you in terms of your poetry ventures you know i've got a a, a book that i'm working on uh with with a different press because it's not disney re related um about 80s rock mainly um oh cool 
and that's a weird one and then who knows what else maybe i've never been to disney world so maybe i need to go to disney world and start work on a disney world book who knows um if any if any disney executives want to sponsor such a thing i would consider it <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, I could imagine a whole uh, whole set of poems just dedicated around the hotels there because they're just so cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll take your word for it. And hopefully I will uh, get to prove that someday. <laughs> yeah. As I lay on this $400 pillow, I am thinking of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure. Although I would be interested in the, the Star Wars and, and DCA poems. I think those would be interesting. So that's true. They could come out. Yeah. Who knows? I'll release a B side book, maybe. Okay. Should be called like the M side or something, M for mouse or something. Good work. Good I'm just work. I'm just giving you ideas. So I expect right. a, a commission. Uh, <laughs> Matt, let's uh, conclude with uh, some Disney-related questions uh, that I ask all of my guests. Uh, so we're going to start off with some music ones. Um, promise there are no right answers. Or at least uh, I won't say whether or not they are right or wrong answers. Um, there are no wrong answers. Um, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? You know, when I was growing up, I don't know if I, well, I wouldn't say I listened to the soundtrack, but, you know, I was a senior in college when um, Little Mermaid came out and a friend got a VHS copy. And I think we watched it about a hundred times because it was senior year in college and we didn't want to study. So that might be it. Uh, if you stretch going up, growing up uh, all the way to college. So I would like to see a poem that, that, totally deconstructs that that's true that i'm surprised that didn't happen Pro probably didn't happen because it didn't relate directly to the land but it's coming at some point yeah, yeah my professor is the sea witch <laughs> could happen could happen what disney song most recently got stuck in your head oh most recently I mean, we're in the age of Bruno, um, though we don't talk about it. It it happens. Okay, we'll just leave it there. Yeah, his name is like like uh, Voldemort from uh, Harry Potter. <laughs> I can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Ooh, um, most underrated music. It's a tough call because I mean they, I mean which ones really do have underrated music? Because you know there there's some faction somewhere that will stand to the death that every single one is gorgeous. I mean I kind of like um, 101 Dalmatians just because it's got a songwriter character to it, and though I think the songs have caught on, uh, you know, they're popular songs, uh, you know, Corello DeVille, Corello DeVille. Um, I love the aspect of that movie, just where you see kind of the, the song's creation. So that kind of bumps it up for me. Yeah. And I mean, I think there will never be a day when Canine Crunchies gets its due, but you know what? <laughs> it's, it's in the mix. <laughs> there. It's all there. It's a little ditty. So it works. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, but you're right. It is kind of cool how Roger is a, a songwriter and that, that is a unique profession that is not commonly captured in, in Disney animation. So. It is, but you know, as someone working on a book of poetry, uh, I love that whole creative, uh, you know, that creation of the creative work um, and seeing it happen and see how they play it. It was kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of Disney book questions for you. What is the most recent Disney book that you've read? Uh, well, I'm kind of cheating. There aren't a lot of words, but the 3D Disneyland by, uh, you know, from the Old Mill Press, uh, it's, it's a lot of pictures. So basically it's a picture book, but um, that would be the most recent. Yeah. Well, and there's, what I liked about it is that there's really uh, vivid captions too, that yeah. that's, that's our reading for, for what it's worth. <laughs> captions. But okay. no, they were very nice. So. <laughs> It works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I talked with Dave about that book when it debuted and I think it's a really cool title. Um, you just need yeah. to, and, and, you know, thankfully there's the glasses provided. So even if you have glasses, like folks like us, it, it works out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was beautiful. It's so, f it's such a fun book to look through too. So. For sure. Um, now this may not be applicable because you have written now a Disney book, but if you could write a Disney book on any topic, uh, what would it be about? Um, I guess that would be about um, all the trips I've made to Tokyo Disney, um, which I have not yet. So I would like to have those experiences and then write the book about this. So. Mm -hmm. So it's basically just a, a plan to, to get overseas. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very cool. Yeah, I, I share that like sentiment. Trying to as use well. the wish in a sneaky way to get me more than just the wish. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm I'm still waiting for those Disney cruises to go to Asia. I think that oh. would just be amazing. And amazingly expensive, but amazing nonetheless. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and here's a random question for you, Matt. Uh, so this is a one that varies with every guest. Uh, what is one popular Disney movie that you have never seen and want to watch? Um, I have to say, I have to dig deep and go to Treasure Planet, which I keep meaning to watch, but I haven't because otherwise I've got Disney Plus um so i have watched a lot of and, and i have disney plus and i've been working on a book about disneyland and obsession so i've watched a lot of disneyland movies the past uh four or five years so um but that's the one that's kind of next on my list that i've never seen you know i even watched uh uh you know re now I've seen Sword in the Stone a few times i probably saw that in the theater when i was a tiny kid um but yeah, yeah, Treasure Planet. It is imaginative. I'm not sure if anybody would say it's popular, but it, it was a huge <laughs> box office bomb. But uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a great film, actually. I quite enjoy it. Yeah, because I'd say there's probably not, I, I can't imagine there's a Disney movie that would be described as popular that I haven't seen at this point. So yeah, nothing mm -hmm. jumps to mind, at least. Gotcha. Well, I mean, I've been I, digging on Disney Plus, you know, uh, 
son of flubber <laughs> uh blackbeard's ghost uh you know anything i can kind of kind of get <laughs> and there's still so much from from that era from the 60s that isn't on there yeah. i mean there's there's so many opportunities particularly with the old specials that they've occasionally scattered on there um, oh man once they jumps like when when they like they've got a couple episodes of was it wonderful world of disney um, yeah. which i grew up watching every sunday night after after mutual of omaha's wild kingdom um you know so that is something i would love to see uh, see more of well for a complete time travel experience just watch the mouseketeers go to disney world from 1977 or i think it's roughly that period it is it even includes the commercials from the broadcast um which is right. very right. insightful so awesome yeah yeah i have to thank courtney guth from book of the mouse club for exposing me to the the brilliance that is that uh <laughs> it is it is so off the wall um in in terms of some of the things that they got away with that they could never do now so yeah all right i'm gonna have to look this one up that's that's the tease. Um, how can listeners follow your work and pick up a copy of your new title at the corner of Fantasy and Maine? All right, you can get it at theoldmillpress.com. Uh, they've got signed copies, free shipping. They're awesome. You can also go into all, any of your locally owned independent bookstores and order a copy um, or any of the other bookstores, but they all have they can all uh, get copies of it. Um, you can follow me and what I'm doing. Look me up on Facebook. Uh, Nebraska State Poet Matt Mason is kind of my public page. And then I've got a website at matt.midverse.com uh, with upcoming readings and events. And right now, uh, there's aren't too many events, but there will be as once the book is uh, off the ship. Uh, the official release date for the book was last week, but it is uh there's shipping delays it's coming from korea and going through the la port where of course everything goes through instantaneous no uh so it might be a couple weeks before it's uh officially in people's hands um but once it is i'm gonna start doing readings all over nebraska and beyond so awesome matt has been a true pleasure and I am glad you have contributed to the Disney book landscape with a, a great poetry book. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. And thank you again to Matt Mason for joining me on Notably Disney. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and hearing from the person himself of what some of those poems are like. Certainly there's a lot of energy and style associated with Matt's writing and uh, and you'll find many more of them in At the Corner of Fantasy and Maine, Disneyland, Midlife, and Churros. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N Reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.
Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.